Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying healthy and I hope you're staying happy. My guest today, Joe Pantoliano, is a working actor for over 40 years. From doing plays in empty basement theaters in New York City, to Broadway, to guest roles on the biggest television shows of several decades, and I'm talking shows like MASH and The Sopranos, and then juicy supporting parts in films like Risky Business, The Goonies, The Fugitive, Memento, Bad Boys, The Matrix. He's been in everything, and he says, there aren't any small parts, just small paychecks. He jokes that he has a 20-minute face, perfect for character work, but his new film, From the Vine, offers him the chance to show off his 90-minute face. His first starring role in recent memory sees him playing a man who gives up a high-flying career as an executive to return to Italy, where he was born, to search for some meaning in his busy life. We'll talk about From the Vine in a sec. I started this interview by asking Joe Pantoliano that in these times of pandemic, when we can't go to the movies, is there a movie or a moment on a movie set that he thinks of when he thinks of the movies? Here's what he had to say. I, I remember seeing The Music Man. My dad took me to Journal Square, New Jersey, Jersey City, New Jersey, you know, back in the turn of the century. Talking pictures, I guess these palaces like Lowe's Paradise, and uh, and they were in every major city. So there was a Lowe's. We called it Lowe's, <laughs> Lowe's Paradise. Uh, but I, that theater, the Music Man was what night in the sixties. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I remember being ten years old, and. Uh, and it, and and the and the when the when the lights with the house lights were down, it was like stars in the ceiling, and they were and there were like um, these baroque uh, um, balconies, uh, and you felt like you were in Europe. You know, when 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 I was a kid, they would do personal appearances. Right. You know, so people from the movie, I remember. I, I, there was a theater, in, the only movie theater in, in Hoboken, New Jersey, was the Fabian Theater. And the Fabian was showing the Three Stooges Go to Mars. <laughs> and, and we had a local uh, WPIX uh, uh, kid show host called Officer Joe Bolton. He, was, uh, he would walk around in his cop uniform and he would talk to... Uh, you know, it was, it was his kind of like Access Hollywood in those days. Uh, but the Three Stooges came on stage and they did a little bit of their act and they talked to the kids and took questions. And, and that was the coolest thing in the world for me. Yeah. To see these guys on my mother's 19 inch black and white television in living color. Cause you know, everything was black and white. Yeah. Until we got a color television set. That wasn't until 65. Right. It was used, um, so that's that memory. And uh, and movie memories, you know, but the, 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 one of the big pleasures is is when we made the Goonies, uh, because they don't make movies like that anymore. Everything was practical; it had to be built. Right. And and at Warner Brothers, um, they have a stage that still is the largest water stage in the world. 
so it can hold water. So they they did they did Captain Blood there, and so when they they Mike Reber, who's no longer with us, he was the production designer, and somehow he found the original blueprints for Captain Blood for the pirate ship, and so he built that ship, uh, and. So it, it was surrounded by water and, uh, and, but we would go swimming during lunch. And, and because the Goonies had to be complete, we were shooting six day weeks with three units and Steven Spielberg was, was doing a second unit and Richard Donham was first unit. And so we would, my son Marco, who's now 39, uh, would come on, on the weekends and we'd all go swimming with that, all the kids during lunch. It was great. So much fun. You're listening to my interview with Joe Pantoliano, star of From the Vine. My movie fandom wasn't as acute as it is today, but now when I look back, because I, I was a Warner Brothers actor. I mean, I did a lot of movies for Warner. I was not but a contract player. They no longer did that. But I was on stages. And now when you go back, they have plaques yeah. Uh, to tell you what movies were shot there. And, and when I first worked there, it was called the Burbank Studio. And Columbia Pictures, Columbia TV, it was a whole conglomerate of different studios that were using Burbank Studio. So, so I, my big, uh, first big job I ever had was doing the mini series of From Here to Eternity based on the James Jones book. Uh, with Natalie Wood and Steve Railsback and William Devane, directed by Buzz Kulick. And, and the stage seven, where we shot uh, the, the prostitute, Mrs. Kipfer's um, um, whorehouse. You know, when we did, it could be a whorehouse. When they did, it was a dance parlor. That's right. You know, the, uh, <laughs> that, was the, uh, that was stage seven. That's where, that was Rick's Cafe, the interior of Rick's Cafe. Wow. So, so I didn't know any of that. Yeah. Then, you know, but I, you know, I walked the streets and, uh, and, and ate, ate at the cafeteria that James Cagney and Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart. And, geez, it's just the history of, of that. I, I'll tell you a great story. When I got from here to eternity, they still had a makeup and hair department. Um, and so they, they needed to fit me for a hairpiece, because I was, I was only 25 years old, but I had a high forehead and I was losing my hair. And so they wanted to try some looks on me. So they took me into the makeup and hair to take Polaroids to show the producer, director, the different looks. And out of this, this cardboard box, they took these old hairpieces um, that had, had papers pinned into them. And on those little yellow, in, yellow with age pieces of paper it said Humphrey Bogart, uh, Walter Brennan. So they were putting Humphrey Bogart and Walter Brennan hair pieces on me, wow. probably from To Have and Have Not. And yeah. I thought, that's fantastic. And then they sent me to a place called Bob Roberts, the guy who made wigs on Robertson Avenue, or Robertson Boulevard in LA. And as I was walking up the courtyard, out walks Jimmy Stewart. He's got a he's got a, like a fishing cap on, and he's got he's carrying a box. It's it's his hairpiece. <laughs> oh, 
And I said, Mr. Stewart, I'm a, I'm a young actor. I just got a big job over at Warner Brothers. I'm getting fitted for my first hairpiece. He said, well, good for you, young man. He says, I, he says, I didn't get fitted for mine until I was 38. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a fantastic story. Well, movies clearly have played, you know, a, 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 a huge role in your, your professional life. But before that, On the Waterfront was a movie that changed a lot of stuff for you before you had decided to become an actor. But it sort of pushed you in that direction. Is that right? Well, yes. See, it was a big deal. I mean, the two main aspects of my growing up in Hoboken was... A, Frank Sinatra got out. Frank Sinatra grew up on Monroe Street. Monroe Street was where all the Italian immigrants were from. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a second generation Italian American. So my parents grew up knowing Sinatra and, and my grandfather was the first Italian firefighter and he got his pal, Marty O'Brien, which was Frank Sinatra's father, you know, another Italian. Uh, on the fire department. So, th you know, it was like, like how immigration works is you, right. you learn from the, from the group before you, right. you, you learn how, and you know, Italians know how politics works from their own country. And so we all kind of sim assimilate into the fabric of the societal aspects. And, uh, and so Sinatra got out. I was, I was born in poverty and, and like most poor people, your options are athletics, entertainment, sports, mm -hmm. right? I, I just said that. Or organized crime. And, uh, and I, organized crime wasn't an option, but I was certainly around a lot of tough guys. So I, I, I certainly knew how to play that. But the idea of getting out, that show business provided an opportunity for me to get out. It was Frank Sinatra, Jimmy Roselli, and the fact that On the Waterfront was shot there. You know, that was that was a big deal. That mm -hmm. was a big deal. And then so you have a dream, a young, a young boy's dream, and you go after that dream. And then by luck and tenacity and blissful, useful ignorance, not <laughs> knowing how hard it's gonna be. Uh, and, and then you, you, you wind up being lucky enough to fulfill that dream is, 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 a, is, is just a, a miracle. I mean, I, I went to Hollywood in 1977 with my girlfriend. We both got on that airplane with $1,500 each in our pocket. $1,500 cash that, and a dream. Yep. And, and, uh, and, and now here I am. So are you visiting Italy for business or pleasure? Oh, I don't know. You fly all the way here from America? Canada. Same thing. You flew all the way here and you don't know why? That's how you wind up on a watch list, sir. I have to tick a box. Where are you staying? At Cerenza, my grandfather's. And what are you doing there? Visiting. Ah, oh, now we're getting somewhere. You are going to visit your grandfather. No, he's dead. And you're just showing up now? I'll put pleasure. You work it out on your own. Well, it's interesting 
when I look at the character that you play in From the Vine, and then I think about your life, I think I see a lot of parallels. And I see someone who uh, went for success. When they got success, found, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't what they thought it was going to be exactly. And then at a certain point, uh, made some decisions to change their life. And I'm thinking about uh, you coming out and very publicly discussing uh, substance uh, issues and and mental health issues, uh, writing a book called Asylum. Your character took a a different route uh, to this, but I've read where you say that when you were thinking about the character, that you said to your director, well, I'm just going to make this kind of a documentary because I think you saw the parallels as well. Yeah, and also there was a, there was very little time mm. uh, from the time that I was uh, that I was cast in it. And, you know, there was very there was a very small window of time before we were going to shoot, and I totally identified with with Marco in, in, in those respects. And I was going to you know use that as a as a, a framework, but. One of the things that was different between Marco's uh, uh, and Joey was that Marco didn't know that anything was wrong. I think a movie like this, though, that is about rediscovering what's important in life, that is about loyalty, that's about doing the right thing, is a perfect tonic for what's going on in the world right now. And yeah, I think and also, and also, I, I, it's it's also about somehow we were fed a, a a load of propaganda that producing and making money and going to the right schools and getting that right job and then you'll be happy, which is which is bullshit. It's just mm-hmm. it's not true. It's not true. And so Marco goes there and his wife and daughter go to save him, protect him. They think he's gone crazy. (laughs) And they're going to go there and grab him, throw a net over him and say, you know, save their fortune. And they wind up discovering what he accidentally discovers. He doesn't go there with a plan. He doesn't even know how he got there. So it's beautiful. And just before we talked, it's beautiful that it turned out. It's a beautiful movie for the times. Uh, it's so intimate. Uh, you can see it with your family, six feet apart, with a nice glass of wine and some, you know, salami and hors d'oeuvres. But I was just on the phone prior, and it's the number. It's in the top ten movie of the of uh, in Canada. Oh, um, congratulations. Yeah, and you know, it's a little movie, yeah. but people are watching it. And that that makes me feel good because these wonderful experiments, you can turn out to have a really good movie, but to find it, to get audiences to find it when you don't have a budget to, you know, to promote and tell right. them, watch it, watch it, watch it. So, yeah, it's... Um, so who knows? Maybe if if you know, 
it's, it's just very rewarding. You're listening to my interview with From the Vine star, Joe Pantoliano. Well, I, I love that it is a leading role for you, which uh, isn't something that you've done often in recent years. And I love, I was reading about this and I love this quote. You say that you have a 20 minute face. <laughs> I, I don't say it. Producers say it. Buyers. Buyers have pigeonholed me uh, because that's what they do. I got a great review from somebody in Canada who was surprised that I was, you know, so good because, you know, character actor has become a bad word. Right. When I aspired to be a character actor, it meant that you did different characters. You didn't do the same thing. All good actors are character actors. We are taking on, you know, Olivier with the nose and the walk, you know, with, we're creating characters. That's what I wanted to do. But somehow it character actor means bit player now. Right. You know, and so when they see you do something and that, you know, that, that I, you can carry a movie, they're almost like, oh my God. Uh, uh, or, or, you know, they're so inundated with the 20 year cycle of the Sopranos that all they remember is that part that I worked on for, you know, a couple of years. It wasn't, yeah. you know, I, I, I did 24 episodes of The Sopranos and they don't remember, uh, you know, uh, The Fugitive or all the bad boy movies or, or you know, all of these Business and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. They go, oh, yeah, he plays. So that's also interesting. Um, well, it, it, well, this movie proves that you have a 90-minute face. I got a 90-minute face. <laughs> Thanks to you. <laughs> Appreciate that. We were talking about the character of Marco. We were talking about the, the, the idea that he was driven by success up until this time, that he has this epiphany. And I've got a quote here from you where you say success was your drug of choice for a long time. And in your book, Asylum, you talk about uh, other uh, uh, struggles. Uh, the seven deadlies, there's food, vanity, shopping, shoplifting, uh, sex, alcohol, prescription drugs, and success is the seventh one. How does it relate to the others? What's like, the yeah, they're all symptoms. They're, they're my seven deadly symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they're all symptomatic. I think, I think success was number three. You know, I thought that if I could if I could achieve that dream, if I could wind up being inside my mother's 14 inch black and white TV, like, you know, like Frankie Sinatra, uh, that, that this unconscious feeling that lived inside of me, which turns out to be childhood trauma, mm -hmm. unresolved trauma. Um, that 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 feeling would go away, uh, and also what they what they call uh, you know being an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I think a lot of success. If you look at this current U.S. president, who who who's gone after uh, everything, you know, to prove that he's not as small as he feels yeah. like you know so so i was going to show them 
You know, I was going to show everybody, all the kids that, that bullied me and, 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 and all the teachers that said I was an idiot, uh, you know, that, that I'd never amount to anything. So that, that this art form was my ticket to prove to them that I wasn't a piece of garbage. I'll show them. So, and I think a lot of, a lot of brilliant uh, artists, uh, uh, careers, politicians. I think that's that's a that's a that's a, the Achilles' heel for some for, for 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 most of us is that the problem is that the hole is so deep and so dark and so far down, and we just keep digging. You know, so the gift is is the conscious understanding if you're lucky enough to realize that you have something that's broken that can be repaired uh you know uh that can be treated if you break your ankle you don't you know try to fix it yourself you go get see an expert you know, I love how in the early part of your career, when you were doing plays in New York in a basement, you say, nobody cared about these plays. Nobody came. No, it didn't matter. And I love that you kind of embraced the failure of that because that's how you learn, right? You fall oh. down six times, you get up the seventh time. And that's what keeps us moving forward. And I think sometimes I never... we forget about that because we yeah. just get so caught up in the idea that everything has to work and everything's got to be perfect and everything has to be successful that we forget about the importance of failure. But the pro yeah. But the problem is, is that it's harder and harder to find those basements. Right. You know, everything that's this big, you know, everything is so instantaneous. Um, but, but, but being free to, to fail because we're going to fail and the great, you know, I never, I never learned a thing from a success. Yeah, yeah. There's no value in it. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. What a pleasure to speak to you. Same here. I had, I, I had, uh, it was real fun to talk to you, and I, and I, and I hope I see you in person soon. That was Joe Pantoliano. You can see him in From the Vine on VOD right now, wherever you legally rent or download movies. Also, check out his book, Asylum, at Amazon.ca. It's a few years old. It came out in 2012, but the messages in it are just as timely today as they were when they were written. Humble the Poet stops by the Pop Life Bar. He is a Canadian-born rapper, spoken word artist, poet, international best-selling author, and former elementary school teacher with a wildly popular blog with over hundreds of thousands of monthly readers and hundreds of thousands more who follow him on social media. In this conversation, we discuss his new book, Things No One Else Can Teach Us, what he learned from his failures, including a bad record deal, and how, even after he crawled out of crippling debt, the satisfaction was short-lived, and much more. Here's Humble the Poet. So I've been reading about you, and I've read that when you were a young person, that the autobiography of Malcolm X was your favorite book. Yeah. What was it about that book that spoke to you? Um, I think it was his honesty. I think it was also kind of uh, growing up in an urban environment. I come from Rexdale, uh, you know, which is one of our urban neighborhoods in mm -hmm. Toronto. And just to see the idea of that you can learn and you know, not have to lose yourself in, in the lessons uh, once they change who you, you know, once they change the trajectory of your life. And I think with Malcolm X, 
the importance is not only the message he was presenting, but how he presented it. You know, he uh, uh, in his previous life, he was he, you know he he ran into gangs on the mm -hmm. streets, and he kept that swagger and that style, and that allowed him to deliver his message in a way that people really resonated with. So I think for me, as a hip hop artist, as an elementary school teacher, how you deliver the message is just as important as the message. And I think that was one of the first people that kind of showed it to me and spoke it in a language that I understood. Uh, when I read your book, when I listen to the to the music. Um, there are lessons to be learned, and lessons certainly with the book, and, and there are lessons to be taken away from it. Is yeah. that just part and parcel of who you are? A hundred percent. To be a teacher is to be a lifelong learner. The reason I wanted to be a teacher was as one of the few professions that I understood at the time where you could do it for 30 years and you will not say any two days were the same. Or you right. will not say, I've seen it all. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. every day is an adventure in that. And, especially uh, at the elementary level. Especially yeah. at the elementary level. I have plenty of stories I can share there. And I think for me, um, and as I got into it, and I taught for about seven years, um, you know, you start to realize there's other parts of this job that may not be as fun. And for me, I kind of got into it, A, to continue learning for myself selfishly, uh, but B, also to, you know, to light a fire within students. And right. sometimes when you get into standardized testing or when you start getting into the, the expectations of your principal or your superintendent or how the government gets involved in children's education, that really sucks the fun out of it. So I think for me as an artist, uh, as I slowly, you know, moved away from teaching and got into art, um, what I realized was this was my opportunity to still light fires in people, but not have to give them a pop quiz after. <laughs> That's right, and, and and spend hours, you know, grading, marking, and grading, and, and evaluating yeah. a kid. Yeah, that and that part wasn't my favorite. So I think now I've been able to make the the necessary shift where I can still, you know, be that lifelong learner. Uh, and still take what I've learned and share them with the community of people who are interested in hearing it. That was a little taste of my interview with Humble the Poet. Check out his book, Things No One Else Can Teach Us, wherever you buy fine books. When we come back, we're going to switch gears a little bit. I'll introduce you to legendary rock photographer Mick Rock. He's often referred to as the man who shot the 70s for his iconic images of David Bowie, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Queen, the Ramones, Blondie, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it goes on and on and on. Born in London, he has resided in New York City for over 35 years and has shot over 100 album covers. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. Mick Rock is in studio now. You have seen his work for your entire life. You've seen the cover of... That's how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it, it, it is so uh, omnipresent in so many people's lives. The cover of Ian the Stooges, Raw Power, Queens, uh, Queen 2 and Sheer Heart Attack, The Ramones, End of the Century, Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll, not to mention... And here we're going to go down the rabbit hole a little bit with me because I'm such a huge David Bowie fan, not to mention the David Bowie photographs. And when I first became aware of your name was seeing it on the side of photographs in Hit Parader magazine, seeing it on the back of album covers and that sort of thing, mostly in Hit Parader magazine, mostly related to David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust. You were David Bowie's personal photographer for those days. Give me a sense of what it was like to be in the middle of that maelstrom. I mean, this was someone who hadn't been particularly successful up until this point, and all of a sudden cuts all their hair off, dresses differently, creates a, an album, which I still listen to about once a week, and all of a sudden is the biggest rock star in the world, and you were there for it. Yeah, well, looking back, that was, I mean, at the time, it was incremental, mm -hmm. Um and um, 
But yeah, now I look back, and of course I have. There's a couple of other photographers did great pictures of him, but they were in the studio. I wasn't a studio photographer, and I toured with David, so um, I do you know pictures of him sleeping, eating, especially doing his makeup, makeup <laughs> or getting prepared backstage, uh, hanging around in his underpants, no less, <laughs> uh, and. Um, well, David was a very smart, of course. Yeah. It's, it's, I, he's, people say, how do you feel? I said, well, it's so strange with David because he's gone, mm-hmm. but he's everywhere. I mean, in a way, in some ways, as far as the modern world is concerned, David Bowie, not for older people necessarily, or not that older people don't like him. Certainly, you know, 70 and 80-year-olds, it's still the Rolling Stones because they're still going. Or Bob Dylan, even. Yeah. But but I, I don't think the kids relate as much to those. But they, everybody, and they, when I did this massive exhibition, remember when I was down there about a month ago in Mexico City at this huge museum, like 150 prints and huge prints, there was so much media. And when all the... You know, when we when I did talks and that, the kids, came, and they were young, mm-hmm. all wanting the autograph and pictures of David. But David was a futurist. I mean, you look back at Ziggy Stardust, you look back at the music. Again, God bless the Rolling Stones. I certainly would never knock them for going out on stage, and they're not that much older than me. And I go, oh, my God, <laughs> I love it, you know. But David... David, you listen to Ziggy. You listen to Hunky Dory, which yeah. is the album that really turned me onto him. It doesn't sound like old music. No, I mean not that people mind old music. Yeah. Look at all the nostalgia acts there are out today, making a ton of money, and they haven't had a hit in twenty, twenty-five, thirty <laughs> years. But they can trot out. Yeah. You know, I was think of a band like Journey, not to pick on Journey. Who had never been the interest? None of that REO Speedwagon, Kansas. No, that was not. And I never photographed any of them. I, well, I was a city boy for starters. Yeah. Um, and um, it's, it just sounds like today. Or you listen to something a bit later, like Young Americans, mm-hmm. or, or um, you listen to the scary, whatever it is you're listening to of David. And even the look. I mean, Ziggy yeah. Stardust is so postmodern still. Forty years later, it, it's uh, yes, and I did it. And of course, I was didn't really have a lot of perspective. I was it was all intuitive and about the relationship and not thinking about it, but enjoying it. But to see it grow, and it did grow quite fast. I met David in the in March of. 72 and it was that Ziggy was actually over by November 73 I mean it was a short burst and he really didn't play and he did in Tokyo play a very big uh, um, show but really in London and New York I mean he wasn't playing stadiums in fact nobody was playing stadiums yeah, yeah. in the in those days um Unless it was for the Monterey or um, Woodstock or, or something, well, like that. Yeah, 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 but there weren't many of them either. The Isle of Wight had started, I remember, but um, they, but they were playing places like uh, the Hammersmith Odeon. You know, probably three, four, or five thousand people at a time. That would be a big rock show. 
at the time. At that time. And for him, I mean, when I took the picture of him gnawing away on Mick Ronson's yeah. guitar, which became such a... At that time, yeah. I mean, today, it's a An different world. An outrageous image from yeah, For that period, yeah. yeah. Um, there were a 1,000 people at that concert, and that was his biggest audience to date. Wow. And I be do believe, again, sometimes I have good recall because of all the yoga I do, but sometimes... <laughs> but it, I, it might have been the day after the release of Ziggy Stardust, so the full thing hadn't happened, right. but he had built enough momentum... For him, when I first saw him at, what was it, Birmingham Town Hall in March, remember this, March, April, May, this is only maybe three months later. So that happened very quickly. Um, he, um, he was up to a thousand people, and yeah. that was a big deal for him at that point in time. Um, and he never, he played Earl's Court, but not the big Earl's Court. I think I saw a the Grateful Dead there in right. the summer of 72, uh, and I think they filled the bigger space because, you know, they had this but, hippie following. But reading about it at the time, we just have a minute left here, but reading about it at the time, it felt to me like there was this wave happening. I didn't know there were only a thousand people there. He had bodyguards. He had like no it, the theater of yeah, it all. It was yes. it was the theater of it all, and that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about the photographs as as images of a moment. He was a in star time. before he was a star. He was treated like a star, and that was part of the game, mm -hmm. right? Like to have a personal photographer. Yeah. I mean, the thing with me was I didn't cost much. I mean, <laughs> he couldn't have had, like, one of those because they couldn't have afforded it. Yeah, David Bailey was not going to be no, his... Was uh, gonna yeah. put, no, he wasn't. <laughs> um, but um, it, it was very personal, but, it, but in a very cool way. And it wasn't... That came a little bit later. It wasn't full-stretch sex, drugs, and yeah. rock and roll. I mean, 73, that was starting to gear up and, you know, the toilet runs and things like that. You're listening to my interview with legendary rock photographer, Mick Rock. The term personal photographer sounds fairly grand. You just said you didn't cost much. So maybe that was a part of the thing. No. But for me, <laughs> as a kid sitting on this side of the Atlantic, yes, it looking looked like at a much bigger deal boy, than it, it was inside. But of course, it was generating... David mm -hmm. and David and of course Mick Ronson was a very important part of that whole thing and the two of them together on stage I mean that that was a vision God bless Mick and Keith and yeah. Stephen and Joey and yeah. whatever these you know the double acts that yeah. front a lot of bands but I mean those two David and, and Mick Ronson, the guitar player Unbelievable. from Hall. And, and the arranger. Mm -hmm. He arranged a lot of David's stuff. Well, he was and, very important. And not just David's stuff, but it, like he That's was. True. Okay, so he is uh, a guitar player from Hull. <laughs> he is working class, as you could possibly imagine. He was a gardener most of the time, yeah, so he made and, his money. And, and he could arrange uh, by ear orchestral mm -hmm. things. And, and if you go Tony on, Visconti yeah. can talk at length about that because he worked directly how Mick from the beginning was um, was arranging and he I think he did have some musical training but a lot of it was intuitive mm -hmm. he, he just um, 
he never realised. Yes, of course, later uh, he toured with Dylan, like on yeah. the Rolling Thunder tour. Yeah. He produced Morris's album that was at that point was the most successful album. He worked with Roger McGuinn. He worked with, oh, Jack and Diane. Yeah, he yeah, had a right. lot to do with that. But Mick Ronson should have been a massive star. We mm -hmm. should be talking about him in the same way that we talk about Jimmy Page, the same way that we talk about... He had the about, talent. He certainly had the talent he definitely and the look had the talent. and everything else, but maybe he liked look. gardening more than being a star. No, he was, yeah, he wasn't psychologic. I mean, David was a London lad. Right. And London lads were flashy by nature, you know, and he wanted the attention. But Mick, they did try and launch him as a solo star, but he didn't really... I still know his wife, Susie, today, and his, she's still a good friend of mine. And uh, he, he was kind of diffident. I don't, when I say diffident, I don't mean he wasn't enthusiastic yeah. when he was doing things. But he just, I don't think he ever fully appreciated his own talent. If only he'd lived a bit longer and he'd started to understand, well, the passage of time does interesting things and it starts to weed out the wheat, you know, because there's millions of hits going on every yeah. day. There's a hit. But the, the stuff, not that one hit wonders can't produce incredible records mm -hmm. and it sticks around forever. But longevity is the thing. But, but the talent, that other level of, that are starting back yeah. with with the Stones and the Beatles and, um, of course, Elvis and uh, and Bowie and loads of Queen, uh, massive. But, uh, but Mick had that level of... Talents, and of course, he co-produced Transformer. Yeah. That's another thing. Um, but he was, well, he, I mean, he was, and he was beautiful, but he, he wasn't that, it wasn't that he was anti, he just kind of wasn't bothered about it. It wasn't in his mind. What fun talking to legendary rock photographer Mick Rock about working with David Bowie and Mick Ronson. Now, Bowie, everybody knows. If you're not familiar with Mick Ronson, though, check out his solo album, Slaughter on 10th Avenue. You'll hear one of the best guitar players who I think never got his due. Well, that's it. Big show today. My thanks to Joe Pantaleone for coming by. Also like to thank Humble the Poet and, of course, Mick Rock for spending some time with us. Most of all, though, my biggest thanks goes to you. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Be happy. Be safe, and we'll talk again soon.